church family. It's good to be with each of you and to have the opportunity to share in God's word together. So as we go to him and seek to be instructed, let's ask him to give us hearts to understand, hearts to believe, and ready to obey. Let's, let's pray. Our Father, we ask of you that for what you have commanded, give us the ability to obey. God, for where you have asked us and commanded our trust and our allegiance, enable us, Lord, to be those who walk in trust, who walk by faith and not by sight. And God, we pray that as we think now about this ordinance that you have given to the church, guide our thoughts. Lord, that we would think rightly about this ordinance and what it means and how it shapes the way that we would be followers faithful to our Lord Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as Pastor Dave mentioned, this morning we are taking a break from our regular series in the book of 1 Thessalonians, and we will start a two-part series on the ordinances of the church. And this morning we will be focusing our attention on baptism. I want us to sort of immediately focus our understanding as we think about baptism. Just right out of the gate, I, I want to strike a certain note in our understanding. I want us to understand that baptism gets its meaning and its importance from the death of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, for our sins and from his resurrection from the dead. We aren't talking mainly about a religious ritual. We aren't talking mainly about a denomination, though our church is a Baptist denomination. We aren't talking merely about a church's tradition. We're talking mainly this morning about Christ. We're talking about his life, his death, his resurrection for us, and how he has appointed that his life, his death, his resurrection would be dramatized as people pass, being buried with him in baptism, passing from death to walk in newness of life, as we do that, as we claim to be his followers. So, if you're tempted this morning to think sort of these small thoughts when it comes to baptism, to, to maybe think to yourself, well, here we go. This is sort of a pastor's hobby horse. It really doesn't have anything to do with my Christian walk. So, I guess I'll just come back ready to listen next Sunday. Well, I hope that by the end of this sermon, you would be thinking differently, okay? 
We ought rather to think large thoughts when it comes to baptism. We ought to think huge thoughts, I would argue, when it comes to baptism and what is being signified when a person is buried in water and comes up out of that watery grave in the name of the triune God. When a husband slides a wedding ring onto his wife's finger for the first time, seconds after they have become husband and wife after taking covenant vows. Just like that is no small thing. Baptism is no small thing. It's not something to be blown off or avoided simply because it might point out where Christians differ. But that symbol of placing a ring on the finger is big and weighty. It's a form that carries substantial spiritual realities and responsibilities with it. In the same way that baptism carries substantial spiritual weighty and responsibilities with it. Well, what exactly are those realities in baptism? I have five points of what baptism is this morning. Five points of what baptism is, and then six points of application for us. So if you add that up, that's 11 points. Buckle up. Number one. Baptism is an ordinance of the Lord Jesus. Baptism is an ordinance of the Lord Jesus. What I mean by that is simply that Jesus commanded or ordained this to be an ongoing practice of the church in making disciples. An ongoing practice of the church in making disciples. This comes right out of the great commission that Jesus gave his disciples in Matthew 28. Matthew 28, the resurrected Lord appears to his disciples, and these are his last words telling them what they are to be doing until he returns. Matthew 28, verse 19, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So he's in charge. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, the main verb that's in this passage, or the main action that Jesus is calling his disciples to, is make disciples. That's the main action that Jesus is calling his disciples to. And then it's surrounded by participles or subordinate actions. They're explaining how his disciples are to make disciples. And he's saying that as you go to make disciples of all nations, you do so by baptizing and by teaching. That's how we make disciples. We make disciples by baptizing and by teaching. So according to Jesus, an essential ingredient of disciple making is baptizing. We make disciples by baptizing them and by teaching them. So if you ask the question, what does it mean to make a disciple? 
One of the things that it means is to get that disciple baptized. That's what Jesus is saying here. So baptism is an ordinance of the Lord Jesus. He has ordained the church to baptize as it carries out his mission of proclaiming the gospel and making disciples. That's point one, ordinance of the Lord Jesus. Number two, baptism is the way Christians publicly demonstrate that we are on his team. Baptism is the way that Christians publicly demonstrate that we are on Jesus' team. If you look there in Matthew 28, once again, we're baptized into the triune name of God. We're baptized into the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. As we get baptized, we're indicating that we belong not to ourselves anymore, We belong to our God. We are His possession. He owns us. We were bought with a price. We therefore glorify God in our bodies. And we therefore submit to Jesus' authority. And we therefore commit to live our whole life under the rule of God. Of Jesus. So, so to be baptized then is to sign the dotted line, as it were, of observing everything that he has commanded. When we get baptized, we're saying that whole thing of discipling, of teaching them everything that I command you, we're saying, I'm, I'm signing up for that. That's, that's for me. So, when the crowds at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 are convicted by Peter's preaching of the gospel, they they call out, they say, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter gives them very clear instruction. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. A few verses later, we read in verse 41, So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Baptism, then, is how you publicly declare your allegiance to a new king. How you publicly declare, I follow the one true king who reigns over all. It's how you put on the team jersey, as it were. That when you walk out onto the court and you're wearing your team's jersey, everyone in the stands knows whose team you're on. Everyone on your team knows whose team you're on. Everyone on the opposing team knows whose team you're on. As a pastor friend of mine would say, baptism is where faith goes public. Number three, baptism is the way a church affirms and portrays a believer's union with Christ. Baptism is the way that a church affirms and portrays a believer's union with Christ. Now, how we get to that point 
is by first asking the question, who's doing this baptizing? Who is authorized to carry out this command of baptizing? The command to be baptized assumes that somebody should be baptizing somebody else. There's, there's two parties that are present in that command. You can't just sort of baptize yourself. Not sure if any of you have ever tried it, but don't try it, okay? That's not how it works. Well, if you go back to Matthew 28 and we read this great commission in the larger context of all of the book of Matthew, particularly Matthew 16 and Matthew 18 are helpful because Jesus in those passages gives the keys of the kingdom first to his apostles and then to local churches. And what those keys of the kingdom do, they're for binding on earth what is bound in heaven and loosing on earth what is loosed in heaven. That's the way Jesus describes them. In other words, to summarize what that means, the apostles and then local churches are given the authority to make a public declaration or or to make a verdict of sorts on Jesus' behalf. They have the authority to hear somebody's confession of faith, to consider the life of that confessor, and then to declare publicly that as far as they can tell, this person belongs to Jesus. Okay? So the church, in other words, has been given the authority to hand out the team jersey of baptism. In baptism... A church speaks on behalf of Christ to an identifying and professing believer and speaks and says that this person is in fact united to Jesus. That's where we really get, so we talked about um, speaking about or or, uh, confirming somebody's faith, but it also Uh, illustrates this union with Christ. And and we get this from Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, baptism pictures our union with Christ in his death and resurrection. I'm just going to read the highlights from this section in Romans. Paul writes, he says, do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk now in newness of life. Now the wider context of Romans here would say that it it would be a grave mistake to conclude from these verses that water baptism is the means by which we're united to Christ. That's not what Paul is saying here. In Romans... Faith is the means. Faith is the instrument by which we are united to Jesus. That's why Paul is going to say, therefore, having been justified by faith. It's faith that justifies. And we are justified by being put in union with the just one. Being put in union with Jesus Christ. So union with Christ is clearly, powerfully, essentially wrought through faith. So so when you trust Jesus, you're united to Jesus. 
you are what He is. What He is, righteous and pure and holy and just, He is that for you. So so we ought not to construe these verses to be opposite of the entire message of the book of Romans. Nevertheless, we show this faith, we show the faith that justifies, we signify it, we symbolize it in the act of baptism. At a wedding, if you were to use the old language that has been passed down, we would say things like, with this ring, I thee wed. And what do we mean by that? Well, well, what we don't mean is that by putting a ring on a finger, it makes somebody married. Right? That's, that's not what we're saying. What we are saying is that the ring shows the covenant. It symbolizes the covenant, but, but it's the vows, the covenant vows that make the marriage. Well, well, so it is with faith and baptism. Faith unites us to Christ. Baptism symbolizes, it dramatizes, it demonstrates this faith that is present. So let's read it again. We were buried, therefore, with him, with Christ, by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So this imagery of baptism, then, is most fundamentally burial, death, resurrection. Burial, death, Resurrection. By faith, we're united to Christ, and thus, just as Christ has died, just as Christ was buried, just as Christ was raised, so we also have died. So we also were buried. So we also now have been raised. We live in Him, and death is behind us. When you trust Jesus, your death, in a very real sense, is over. The sting of death has been removed. The power of death removed. It is the last enemy, but it is also now the gateway to paradise. We have died with Christ. Our death was died at Calvary. The judgment of death taken there for us. Your old self of unbelief, of rebellion, of idolatry, dead. And the new you of faith and submission came to life. And now, yes, you may still sin. Yes, you may still fail. But you do so as a new creature, a new creation. You have new eyes. You have new resolves. You have new affections. You have new goals. You have new values. You have new hopes. You have new loves. You have new eyes, a new creature entirely. And you signify that by your baptism. So by plunging a believer under the water and raising them up again, a church sets its seal to that union. 
by baptizing somebody, a church acting through a representative is saying to a believer, we affirm you as a brother or sister in Christ. And then the church is also saying to the world, look here, world. This one belongs to us. This one belongs to Christ. In other words, the individual being baptized is not the only one saying something when they get baptized. In baptism, the believer speaks to God and speaks to the church, but also the church speaks for God to the believer and to the rest of the world. It's number three. Number four, baptism is how a believer commits to Christ's people. Baptism is how a believer commits to Christ's people. Baptism is not merely an act of committing oneself to Christ. It certainly is that. But it's also a commitment to Christ's people. Think back to Pentecost again. Acts chapter 2. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. In the very act of committing themselves to Christ, these believers committed themselves to Christ's people. There was no sort of in-between stage of being with Jesus, but not yet ready to be with the church. To to step out of this Christ-rejecting crowd is to step into the Christ-confessing church. Let me say that again. To step out of the Christ-rejecting crowd is to step into the Christ-confessing church. To receive God as Father is to receive all of His children as brothers and sisters. To be brought near to God through Christ, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, it's also to be brought into Christ's people. So our membership in Christ's universal church is always embodied. It's always put on. It's always made tangible in local churches. So, so you can't really say that you're with Jesus but then hold yourself apart from his people. You can't really say that you're with Christ's people if you haven't committed to a particular local gathering of people who you've committed to help each other follow Jesus together. So in baptism, a believer submits to Christ by submitting him or herself to the instruction and discipline of the church. Number five. Number five, baptism is how a church commits to a believer. Baptism is how a church commits to a believer. In baptism, a church both affirms and commits itself to a believer. As a church baptizes somebody, it is the church adopting that person as their very own. To to bring them into their fellowship. 
You know, you, you don't affirm somebody as brother and sister, but then you just sort of keep them away from the family table. You don't say to somebody, hey, you're on my team, but then you never let them into the locker room. Or their name never gets on the team roster. Or you never ask the person to come to practice. That's not how teams work. In Matthew 16 and 18, it's, it's very clear that for a church to affirm a believer's profession is to unite that person to itself. And vice versa, to reject a person's profession is to exclude them from the communion at the Lord's table, which is another sermon for another day. But in baptism, a church says to a believer, we affirm your profession of faith in Christ, we embrace you as a brother or sister, and we welcome you now into the family. In baptism, a church commits itself to a believer. So we've covered five points of what baptism is. I want to share with you all a story that was shared with me by one of our supported workers that I think just beautifully illustrates all five of these points. Last week, Michael Stilley emailed me this story about a convert to their church in northern Iraq. Their names have been changed for security purposes. I'll read his email of what he shared. Karwan and Jian met in a Syrian refugee camp in northern Iraq. Karwan was converted to Christianity early in their marriage through the witness of the church, and he turned away from abusive behavior, marital infidelity, and started to demonstrate true affectionate care for Gian as he learned to follow Jesus. He told Gian over and over again that he was a changed man. Well, Karwan, after repenting of his sins and trusting Christ, was eventually baptized and joined the church. He then began introducing Gian to other women in the church. Over time, Gian's heart to the gospel started to soften, and she was converted about a year after Karwan. When Jian turned from sin and trusted Christ, she knew that obeying Jesus looked like publicly professing her faith and identifying with Christ's body through baptism. She had witnessed her husband be baptized. She saw baptism clearly taught in Scripture, and yet she was fearful of what this would mean for her relationship with her family. In her culture, when somebody claims to follow Jesus, even in conservative Muslim families, it's actually not that offensive. But if somebody claims to follow Jesus and to do so publicly through baptism, that's when it, quote-unquote, becomes real for everyone. Even without biblical or theological knowledge of baptism, family and society know that baptism is a line in the sand. When someone is baptized, that's when persecution usually starts. At this time, Gian was also pregnant, and the reality of having children and thinking about their future also weighed heavily on her. If she went public with her faith through baptism, 
what would happen to her son? Would kids at school make fun of him? Would he be able to find a job later in life? Would he be able to get married? Would her family try to take him away from them to raise him as a Muslim? These were fears that were not irrational. This kind of persecution, and worse, is a present reality for those who publicly identify as Christian through baptism. It took Gian three years of wrestling with the demands of Christ for her to be baptized into the membership of the church. But by God's grace, she was. And yet, in many ways, her fears of persecution have become a reality. She is not welcomed by her family. She still struggles with fears over how her children will be treated at school. But now, as a member of the church, she is surrounded by brothers and sisters who love and support her, she and her family. And they are trusting the Lord to be with them no matter what persecution comes. Though she once feared evangelism, She now works alongside other women in our church to proclaim Christ to those who are around her. Michael concludes with these words. If we would have explained baptism to Gian as a private act of obedience, she surely would have agreed to be baptized quickly. But because baptism is tied to a visible body of believers, she was forced to count the cost of following Jesus. And by God's grace, her understanding of baptism, the local church, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, is much stronger now than it ever would have been before. Six points of application for us. Number one, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus and you are not yet baptized, come and talk to a pastor at the church of what it would look like to take a step, take that step of obedience. Again, this this comes really right out of the points that I've made above, but baptism is a step of obedience. It's, It's the beginning of living the Christian life in a public manner, where you commit yourself to submission to Christ into submitting yourself to God's people. Number two, baptism normally bestows church membership. Baptism normally bestows church membership. I said normally, so let's think about what, what are those exceptions. Well, a lot of people will ask, well, what about the Ethiopian eunuch, right? Acts chapter 10 the eunuch's kind of headed on the road. He goes down into the water, gets baptized, and then like we don't really see where he goes. He just kind of seems to go off on his own. Well, where the eunuch is headed, there's likely no church yet for the eunuch to be baptized into. And so there are exceptions, certainly. In a missionary frontier setting, somebody who hears the gospel, professes faith in Jesus, there may not be a church for that person to be baptized into. But normally, normally, anytime a local church exists, 
and a believer is able to join themselves to that local church, baptism ought to confer church membership. It should be the way into the membership of the church. Baptism shouldn't just point the way towards the church, leaving a believer with kind of this growing period to one day, maybe when they get serious or maybe when they get around to it, to then become a member of a church. But instead, baptism is the front door of the church. The the way that you enter God's household on earth is through the front door of baptism. Number three, baptism is a necessary but not sufficient mark by which a church recognizes who is a Christian. Baptism is a necessary but it's not a sufficient mark by which a church recognizes who is a Christian. In other words, Jesus gave us baptism in part so that we can tell each other apart from the world. Now, of course, there are other ways that we ought to be able to tell each other apart from the world, right? Like We ought to live in a godly manner. We ought to live with godly character. We ought to demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit. But baptism also plays a part in that. It marks off visibly the community of God's people. So by publicly identifying people as Christians, baptism draws the line between the church and the rest of the world. Baptism marks off Christians as Christians. Again, it hands them the team jersey, as it were. So, for a local church to affirm someone's profession of faith in Christ, it's not enough for someone to merely claim that they're a Christian. It's not enough even for an entire church to think that somebody's a Christian. Jesus has bound the entire church's judgment to the act of baptism. It's a necessary means by which the church discerns which team somebody is playing for. Number four, our church should require baptism for membership. Our church should require baptism for membership. Because of everything that baptism is and does, according to Scripture, infant baptism is simply not baptism. Now, I am not trying to be offensive with that statement. I love my Pado baptist brothers and sisters. I mean that as a theological judgment, okay? Baptism is a believer's act of publicly committing him or herself to Christ and to his people. And it's a church's act of affirming and portraying a believer's union with Christ by immersing them in water. An infant is simply not publicly committing him or herself to Christ in any sort of way in what Pado baptist brothers and sisters call baptism. Now, if you want to say, well, all those, all those who profess faith in Christ should be welcomed into church membership, I would say, you're exactly right. All those who profess faith in Christ 
should be welcomed into church membership. And the way that we profess our faith in Christ is through baptism. That's the way that we profess faith. It's by truly being baptized. Someone who has not yet been baptized has not yet professed faith in the means appointed by Jesus. So if there's no profession there by means of baptism for the church to affirm, then we ought not to say that that person is ready for membership. Okay? As one person put it, Christ's command requires the form as well as the substance. The form as well as the substance. Faith in Christ, that is the substance. Baptism is the form. Jesus has, has bound these two things together, and it's the church's job really to recognize and to honor and to obey that those two things ought not to be torn apart. Maybe an illustration would be helpful here. If we were to leave service this afternoon and you wanted to catch a flight out of Charlotte, you're headed to the gate, and yet you've left your boarding pass with the TSA agent at the security checkpoint. What would happen when you get to the gate? Is the gate attendant going to let you on the plane? No, they're not going to let you on the plane. You paid for your ticket, though. You even have, you can pull your phone out and show them the receipt. Hey, I've paid for this ticket. You have every right to a spot on that plane. And yet, the gate agent is not going to let you on that plane. You don't have your boarding pass with you. They need the authentication. They need the proof of your identity as the person who has bought the plane ticket. Now, you might even say to the gate agent, look, I have read the airline policies. I have a very sophisticated exegetical case that dates back to 500 years of why I should leave my boarding pass at the TSA security checkpoint and not bring it to you but that gate agent is not going to let you onto the plane. What you need to get onto the plane is your boarding pass. Well, so it is with baptism. One way to sum all of this up is to say that baptism is an effective sign of church membership. Baptism is an effective sign of church membership. It is creating a new reality. It's not creating the reality of faith. It's not creating the reality of forgiveness or your standing before God. But it is creating the reality of you, a believer, being joined to a local church. Baptism is what affects that reality. In Acts chapter 2, verse 41 again, there's no separate step. They get baptized into the church. There's, there's not some other means of entering the church, but baptism is the doorway in. Practical point number five. Number five. Our church should ordinarily baptize people into church membership. Our church should ordinarily baptize people into church membership. 
When people come to faith in Christ through our church's ministry, we should teach them that the Christian life begins with baptism and church membership. Until you've been baptized into a church, you have not begun living publicly as a Christian. Your faith has not gone public. You haven't taken your place as a member of the body of Christ. You haven't taken your place publicly as a member of God's family. So baptism and church membership aren't sort of goals that eventually a believer should aspire to. They should be the the starting point of public life as a follower of Jesus. You know, if somebody wants to call themselves a Christian and yet remain free of the church's claim on their life, remain free of Christ's command to follow Him and the fellowship of His people, they want to retain their own authority of how they do their very own discipleship, well, it's the pastor's job as well as Christians' jobs to help that person see how those claims don't go together. We need to help somebody see how following Jesus and fellowship with His church are our friends. They, they go together. Now, there may be tension or awkwardness in that conversation, but, but that hitch that somebody might have when first professing faith in Jesus and then having doubts about whether or not to be part of His church, that hitch is an opportunity for all of us to speak into that person's life and to help them see how baptism is the beginning point of the Christian life, living publicly, and it binds us to Christ's people. Now, some churches are inclined to insert sort of this lag time between baptism and membership because membership includes some important responsibilities. But the problem is that every Christian is both required by God and enabled by God to take their place in the body of Christ. So if you are willing to affirm somebody as a Christian, there's really no need to keep that person out of the body. That's where they will thrive. That's where they will flourish, responsibilities and all. But if you're hesitant about somebody's readiness to join the life of the body, then maybe you should actually back up a few steps and question whether you're truly ready to affirm this person's profession of faith in Christ in the first place. So baptize people into church membership. That's number five. Point number six. Last point, baptize people with readiness, but don't do spontaneous baptisms. Baptize people with readiness, but do not do spontaneous baptisms. All the examples we have of baptisms in the New Testament are as soon as somebody comes to faith. If you want some references, you have that in Acts 2, beginning in verse 38, Acts chapter 10, beginning in 47, Acts chapter 16, verse 14, the list goes on. Well, since baptism is where faith goes public, it should be linked as closely as possible to a person's conversion. It's where faith first goes public. It's where it first shows up. Nevertheless, some churches will take these passages and sort of read them and conclude, well, we ought to have spontaneous baptism services. 
or instantaneous baptisms. In other words, as soon as, soon as somebody walks an aisle, prays a prayer, let's get them wet. No questions asked, no strings attached. Some churches, even in our own convention, will invite anyone to come down on the spot, have fill-the-tank Sundays for people to be baptized. Typically, very few questions asked. Usually, no strings attached. Well, what's actually happening in these instantaneous baptism services, it probably varies. Sometimes, at least though, these baptisms will have nothing to do with a believer committing himself to the church or the church committing themselves to a believer. You can just sort of walk up to the front, say you believe in Jesus, you can leave, you go back to the crowd, you go home, no one really knows where you went, and nobody really has any follow-up questions for you. No one's going to remember. The problem is that's not very much like a profession of faith publicly. It's more like an anonymous profession of faith in front of a lot of strangers. Publicly professing faith is at the heart of baptism, but that's not all of it. Especially we Baptists, I think we've tended to reduce baptism to sort of this individual, personal, public profession of faith, which is certainly part of it, but there's more. Baptism involves coming into the church. It involves coming under Jesus' authority by coming into the church. You know, in the West, there's countless number of professing Christians who think that the Christian life has nothing to do with submitting to Jesus' lordship, nothing to do with obeying Jesus, nothing to do with the local church. But as pastors, as well as members of the church, it's really our job, it's our opportunity to ensure that the people getting baptized here understand that the Christian life has everything to do with submitting to Jesus' lordship. That the Christian life has everything to do with obeying all that he's commanded. And it has everything to do with living our life bound to walk with fellowship in him and in fellowship with his people until he takes us to be with him or until he returns. So yes, baptize people soon. That is, as soon as the church knows that that person is a Christian, and as soon as that person knows what they are signing up for, baptize as soon as that is in place. May God give us grace and help as we seek to do what he's commanded us, to make disciples of all nations, to do that by baptizing by teaching them everything he has commanded, and we have his promise. He is with us always, even to the end of the age. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we have had, this privilege that we have had to share in your word. God, we ask that what we've just heard, we would not merely hear, but Lord, that we would go and be doers of your word. God, that we would see again the, the glory 
of what baptism points us to, the wisdom of your purposes in giving this ordinance to the church. God, that our hearts would be enthralled more and more in greater love and love towards you and towards your people, and Lord, even a lost and needy world. Lord, we pray that you would do these things in our hearts. In Christ's name, amen.